Luke 4, starting in 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zephareth in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. These are the words of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Lord, would you give us grace as we look into this text? Um, would your spirit work uh, both in my words and also in our, our hearts and our minds as we hear your word, that you'd give us understanding, that you would guide us in um, uh, application of it, that you would give us hearts to believe and trust in, in your word as well. Thank you, and I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Has there, has there ever been something that you have waited for for a long time with sort of great anticipation? And when it finally came, it wasn't quite what you expected that it would be, you know? Uh, you, 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 I don't know if this is just me, but when you have something that you are expecting for a long time, you begin to develop in your mind over that period of waiting, you begin to develop ideas of what it's going to look like, expectations for what it will be, how it will happen, all these different other little things, right? Maybe expectations that you couldn't even put words to beforehand until the thing comes and it's not what you expected. And then that expectation turns to what? Disappointment, right? Frustration. Maybe even anger. 
And that's not to say that the thing that you expected, or it's not to say the thing that you actually got was, was bad. Sometimes, actually, the thing that you receive ends up being better. But you don't even realize it because it's not what you expected. You don't realize how much better it is because you don't even give it the time of day because it's not what you thought it was supposed to be, right? I remember one time uh, a writer got Josie a gift, I think, for her birthday. It's been a couple of years ago. And he had, over the course of the weeks leading up to her birthday, he had, I didn't even realize this until afterwards, he had totally um, kind of led her to believe one thing. <laughs> that wasn't exactly the case. And so he had, ta- he had gotten, he actually gotten what she wanted the most. Some pack of Pokemon cards or something, I don't know, something I don't even understand. And, and he, but he had wrapped it in a different thing. And so my daughter, my poor daughter, being so gullible as she is, she unwraps the paper and she sees the outward box of the thing and she is, I, I mean, I, I couldn't even describe to you her face at that moment. She looks at him and she's just like, are you serious? You, like, this is my birthday present from you? And she, she's like mad. If I remember correctly, she like left the room. And writer's like, come back, open the box, open the box, you know? And she opens, or no, I guess you had hid it in the other room, hadn't you? And you had to go get it, yes. He had hid it in the other room. And, and so she's like, oh, you know, she's like about, she's in tears. And he goes, he go, no, no, look, I got the thing, the exact, and then she's, what, you know? This is the exact thing I wanted, you know? We've... <laughs> We've come to a sort of a transition in the book of Luke. And if you remember, we've, we said that the book of Luke, if we we're going to try to sum it up in one sentence, we'd summed it up with this sentence, confidently follow Jesus, the long-awaited Savior. Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. He is what they've been looking forward to, but he comes in a way that's a little unexpected. And I think at this point, it's good maybe to... to Remind us, give, maybe give us a lay of the land of the book of Luke and remind us of it. The text, as I see it, is divided primarily by geographical markers. It helps us to see that there's an emphasis in the book of Luke on following Christ. And he's moving physically throughout the book in kind of the, uh, we don't see it so much in the one passage, one week to another passage, but we see it when we take the whole book at one time, and we are to follow him both spiritually and physically. Now, last week, we had finished up this section about the birth and the preparation of Jesus, of this Savior, before his ministry, and we rooted it in the Old Testament, right? The, the Old Testament prophecy of his coming. He is both long-awaited, but also he was unexpected in how he came right? It was a little bit unexpected when you finally got there. I mean, we, looking back, see how it fulfills all the prophecies, but they, in their time, would have been a little bit surprised. Today, we are going to start the second part of Luke, and it, and it runs from about chapter 4, 14 to Luke nine fifty. And it's Jesus' ministry in Galilee, in kind of the, the uh, outer edges, if you will, the, the, out in the rural parts of town. And then from chapter 9 
the end of chapter 9 to the middle of chapter 19, we're going to see Jesus heading to Jerusalem, and we'll see all these statements of, and he turned his face to Jerusalem, and he moved towards Jerusalem, and he moved towards Jerusalem, and Jesus is heading to that place in which he will win the decisive victory for his kingdom. And then from chapter 19 to the end, we'll see Jesus in Jerusalem doing that thing, And the book will end with Jesus telling his disciples how the gospel must move from Jerusalem out. And if we were to read, you know, Luke's part two of the story, the book of Acts, then we would see that. We would see the gospel going from Jerusalem and then out. So in this section today, we begin this Galilean ministry of Jesus, and it seems that there's one key question in this, these next few chapters that, that it's going to focus on, and, and, and that question is this, who, who is Jesus and what's he about? Who is this Jesus guy? And what's he about? What's his ministry going to be about? And so Luke actually takes this story, this passage today, and he actually moves it to the front. Chronologically, this probably isn't the first thing that Jesus did in his ministry, but, but Luke moves it ahead just a little bit uh, so that we can get kind of a theological picture of, of what Jesus is about from his own words. And it's a ministry, it's, a, it's, a, it's about a message that Jesus, in chapter 4, verse 43, next week's passage, if you want to poke ahead a little bit in, in your Bible there, you'll see it. Jesus calls it the good news of the kingdom. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. In our passage today, he is beginning that ministry. He's declaring what that is. This good news of the kingdom of God is what the people have waited for. For hundreds of years. You think about the thing that you have waited for for so long, and then when it finally came, it was unexpected. This is not just one, what one person has waited for. This is what a whole people group collectively have waited for. This is what the fathers would tell the sons, and the sons would tell their sons that they've been waiting for. But the way in which Jesus says it's come is unexpected. Jesus declares it in his hometown, in his hometown synagogue, the place he would have gone to church, if you will, every Sunday, every Saturday, I guess, actually, correction, would have been every Saturday, every Saturday. And he stands there, and and he's going to declare this, and what I want you to get, what I want you to see as we go through this text is this. You cannot receive the long-awaited kingdom of God if you reject the unexpected king. Jesus is unexpected. But you cannot receive the long-awaited kingdom if you reject the unexpected king. So this is what I want to do. I want to give an overview of the text, and then I want to give you some um, characteristics, if you will, of this message that Jesus is presenting of this message that he's saying, this is what I am going to be about. All right. So as I said, Jesus had already been going around 
we saw this at the very end of last week's passage. He'd been going around, verse 14 and 15 of chapter 4, and he'd been teaching in the synagogues, and it says that he is um, being glorified by all. So people know about him. Excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. Um, people know about him, and they've heard about him, and heard about his teaching. And he goes into his own hometown, and he goes into Nazareth, and uh, on, the, on the day, on, at the time of the synagogue, on the Sabbath day, and what they would have done in the synagogue is that some, someone would have brought out the scroll, right? There would have been an attendant, they would have brought out the scroll, and someone would have read the scroll, um, perhaps something from the, the law, and then perhaps something from the prophets. And then typically, someone would have gotten up and would have either explained that passage that got read, that was the reading for the day, or would have read another passage and then given some sort of explanation, some sort of teaching on it. And so Jesus, being the hometown kid and being kind of you know, having some early fame here, he comes into the synagogue and they're like, oh, wonderful. We've heard about the teaching that you're doing. We've heard about what you're doing, Jesus. Would you get up and would you, would you share? And so Jesus takes the scroll, it says, in verse 17, and he opens it to the prophet Isaiah and he reads. Now, Luke probably doesn't record all of what Jesus read, probably just a summary of what he read. But what Luke does record is mostly a quotation from Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. And to give, it, maybe to give you a little bit of background, a little, to, to help understand what Jesus is saying a little bit better, I want, I want to give you a little bit of what Isaiah is, is about. This is very, this will be the 45-second version, okay? The book of Isaiah is mostly divided into two parts. There's chapter 1 through 39, and there's chapter 40 through 66. Now, the major theme of the second half of Isaiah is the long-awaited Messiah, okay? All of, if you read chapters 40 through 66, you would see that it's just constantly talking about this, this, this long-awaited Messiah and, and, and what he's going to be like and what he's going to bring. And in chapter 40 starts with this quotation about a voice crying out in the wilderness. And you remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that. He is the, he is the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for this Messiah. And so we already know that, and Luke's readers already know that. And so Jesus is kind of building on that here. And so moving from chapter 40, when we go through the next couple of sections of, of Isaiah, what we see is there's these prophecies about uh, the suffering servant. This is what this servant is going to be like and the things that he's going to do. And the whole thing kind of ramps up and it crescendos in chapter 60. Okay. And it begins to describe what will happen when this Messiah comes. And it's describing the, the reality that he is going to usher in a new messianic age, a new age of salvation. And every devout Jew would have known these chapters. Every devout Jew would have read these chapters often, would have repeated these chapters. This was their hope. This is what they waited for, right? This is what they talked about. I mean, think about a passage of Scripture that's been a balm to your soul. Do you have one? One that maybe through difficult times you've gone back to 
over and over and over again. When, when things are difficult, you, that's the place you first have the, that first reaction to turn to that story and to read it again, or to turn to that psalm and to read it again, or to turn to that passage and to, to read it again, because it just does something for your soul, right? It's comforting, it's encouraging, it's hopeful. This was that for them. But not just for one person, but for the entire community. When things got hard, I imagine that maybe a Jew would have said, but do you remember what it says in Isaiah? When you came home and the day had been bad, the week had been bad, your, your good, devout Jewish mom would say, ah, but son, do you remember what it says in Isaiah? Do you remember what Isaiah said? Or your dad would say, son, let me tell you what Isaiah said. That's this passage. And what does it say? What does he say? The Spirit of God will be on Messiah. In the Old Testament, the Spirit is always on the Lord's anointed, right? But, but for the Messiah, it's different. For the Messiah, there's no cap on the Spirit, it's, it's the Spirit overflowing. It's the Spirit just abundant, uh, uh, immeasurable, will be on this Messiah. And, he'll pro- and it says He'll proclaim good news to the poor. He'll, he'll proclaim liberty to the captives, right? Recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's, sa- of the Lord's favor. No doubt these Jews that Jesus is speaking to, even in this moment, even in this synagogue, have been oppressed, right? We learned a couple weeks ago about the fact that they have these Roman overlords, and it's resulted in a a certain kind of poverty for many of them, um, not not near like the riches of the time uh, that's remembered of King David or King Solomon, and even their own religious system, even the Jewish religious system is oppressed is under Roman control as, as the Romans are the ones who get to dictate who the high priests are and, and what happens here and there. And if they don't abide by Rome, then they get kicked out and they, Rome puts in a new uh, puppet, if you will. Oh, that we could, we could worship the Lord how we want without these Roman overlords. Release from Captivity, it's kind of the, it's the terminology that's similar to what, what's used in reference to Israel coming out of Egypt, right? Coming out of slavery. Or Israel coming out of exile in Babylon. Release us, Lord, from Rome. Release us from them like we were released from under Egypt or like we were released from under Babylon. This is the kind of passage that when it's read and when it's spoken of, you would have gotten more amens and hallelujahs than any other passage, right? Like if you were wanting to just, you know, you're the new preacher in town, you want to make sure the first one goes good, you preach this passage because you know everyone's going to be like, all right, yeah. And so it's no surprise. It's no surprise that, that all eyes were set on him after he read it. As I understand it, what would have happened, I'm not an expert in this, but as I understand it, what would have happened is they would roll up that scroll and they would have had a stool set out in front of everyone else and the teacher would sit on that stool and then would, would teach, would explain. Here's, here's what you need to know. Here's what I want to share with you about this passage. And so Jesus sits down on the stool and everyone is sitting there and it says all eyes are set on him. Everyone is waiting with bated breath 
to see what this, this teacher who's been glorified by all is going to say about this greatest passage to us, right? This, this high mark prophecy. What new insight, what great vision of the future is he going to paint for us about that day that we have been waiting for? You've, have you ever had a favorite passage and you find out, hey, on Sunday, pastor is going to preach such and such passage. It's my favorite passage. I love this passage. And, and you're so ex- excited for it. And you get to church on Sunday and pastor gets up to preach and he begins to explain the passage, and you're like, wait a second, that, that's not what I thought that passage was saying. That's, that, that favorite passage of mine that I've loved so much, you're telling me that it actually means something five degrees different or ten degrees different than what I thought it was. Now, now all of a sudden, I don't like this very much. Because I took what I thought it was, I took to heart, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now you're saying it's this? That doesn't feel very good. Even if you're right, and listen, if pastor is right, and that actually is what God's word means, then it's certainly better because God has better things for us than what we come up with in our own head, right? But even still, that's a hard pill to swallow, right? So Jesus sits down, all eyes are on him, everyone's holding their breath, and he delivers this line. I love how, I love how Luke puts this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's just like mic drop to the max, isn't it? Today, this thing you have been waiting for for hundreds of years, this greatest thing that you've been looking forward to, it is. And the word today is at the beginning of the sentence. And when a word is put at the beginning of the sentence, it gives emphasis. What he's saying is, this is. This is now. Not this will be, but this is right now. That age, that new age of salvation, that new messianic uh, time, it has begun. And it says it all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. Who wouldn't go, all right, yeah. Oh, how I would love for it to be true. Oh, how I would love for it to be true. But there's one problem. Isn't this Joseph's son? There's one problem. Wait a second. I watched, I I changed his diaper once. Didn't he make the chair in our house? Right? I mean, this... I imagine, we were just talking about this, Jesus' family had to have been there. It's his hometown. It's the synagogue. They would have gone. I'm just imagining someone sitting there, like, turning to James, Jesus' brother, and being like, "Uh, dude... I don't know what a dude is in Hebrew, but that's how they would have said, or Aramaic, you know. Like, like, wait a second. What? 
aren't you Joseph's son? I think it's no surprise that Luke has gone to links right before this passage to prove to us, if you, if you were here last week for the sermon, to prove to us that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, right? Even in chapter 3, verse 23, did you see what it said there in the genealogy? It said, being the Son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then immediately, the first thing Jesus does raises the question, wait a second, isn't this Joseph's son? Who is he to say this? Who is he to say that this time has come? And so this brings us to the turn in the story, right? We'd love for it to be true, but we're looking around and we still see the Roman soldiers marching outside. We'd love for it to be true, but last time I checked my bank account, I'm still pretty poor, right? My mom is sick. I thought this whole thing that Isaiah was talking about wasn't going to be like that. Jesus sees the writing on the wall, or perhaps the writing on their hearts and minds. And he says, and he, says he quotes this well-known proverb. It was a well-known proverb at the time. Physician, heal yourself. And the basic meaning is this. Prove your claims, and then we'll believe you. Hey, Jesus, that sounds all well and good. That sounds great. That sounds like a great old time, but, but, but just prove it, and then we'll believe it. Just show us, and we'd love to celebrate what you just said. And the crux of the issue is this. Their order is, you said it, do something to prove it, do something to prove yourself, then we'll believe you in your message. But is this how God says it's supposed to happen? If we turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 13, we read this. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder, uh, and the and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, "Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them," you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What it says is this: signs and wonders aren't sufficient. Signs and wonders are not the end-all, be-all. It's God's Word that matters. Even if a prophet or, or uh, uh, whoever comes and they're able to do some miraculous sign, something that blows your socks off, if they're telling you to do things that God's Word does not say, you don't do it. That's false. Even in the Old Testament, the Word was the standard. And we, we see this lived out, I think, you think about Pharaoh, for instance. Who saw more signs done by the power of God than Pharaoh? And those signs only hardened his heart. He didn't see those signs and go, oh gosh, Moses, I guess you're right. Man, I suppose I will believe in God. Rather, they condemned him. They did not convince him. 
or King Ahab, we'll see shortly, who rejected God and God's signs. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 13, it finishes with this, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. You believe God's word, you do what it says, and you trust him. It's on the basis of who he is and what he has said. And so the the people of Nazareth are saying, you said it, now show it, then we'll believe it. But God's order is this, I promised it, trust it, and then I will act. And maybe because I'm gracious, I'll give you some assurance along the way. You see, Jesus can do whatever sign he wants. It's not that Jesus is somehow unable to do a sign in Nazareth because of, you know, the people that are in front of him. It was not a lack, their lack of faith that in some way made it impossible for him to do so. It would not have produced what he desired. So what would have been the point? It would not have produced faith in God. It would not have produced faith in the good news of the kingdom of God. It would not have produced faith in him, Jesus, as the prophet and as the Messiah. And so Jesus responds with two examples, two related examples. He talks about Elijah and Elisha, two prophets of God at what would have been one of the low points in Israel's history. Maybe I'd argue the lowest point in Israel's history until Jesus's ministry. I think Jesus's ministry becomes the lowest point in Israel's history as they reject not just Elijah or Elisha, but they reject Jesus himself. And in this low point, King Ahab has led the people into terrible idolatry. And he wouldn't listen to Elijah, but he listened to the false prophets instead. He listened to the the prophets who told him what he wanted to hear rather than what Elijah told him, which was repent and turn back to God. Stop doing what you're doing. Obey God. Obey him and he will restore you. Keep doing what you're doing and he, his judgment will come. But the other prophets told, told him nicer things, things that he wanted to hear told them that their idolatry really wasn't that bad. It's not that bad. Told them that good things were coming for them, even though they abandoned, they had abandoned God's word, and God's word clearly promised curses for doing so. But God's word wasn't the standard. Even when Elijah made a fool out of all of those false prophets and idolaters by calling down fire from heaven, they still didn't change their mind. And so God led Elijah and led Elisha to people who would listen. And those people happened to be Gentiles, not Israelites. Gentiles that the Israelites didn't really like. Syrians were kind of, you know, they were towards the bottom of the tank, if you will, even amongst the Gentiles. And God did great wonders there to those who would receive him. And it wasn't because the only people in need were Gentile people. No, they were widows in Israel. And 
was because the Israelites had rejected God's prophets. And thus they had rejected God's word. And thus they had rejected God. And so Jesus is saying, I am the prophet, you reject me. You reject the message that I'm bringing. You reject God himself. At this point, the crowd has had too much. Their response is quick and it's emphatic. They're filled with wrath, you know, that kind of madness that makes people crazy. And they drive Jesus out of the town to a steep hill and their purpose is clear. They're going to throw him down. They're going to kill him. But verse 30 says, but passing through their midst, he went away. I don't, I don't know how he did that. But he did that. You cannot receive the long-awaited kingdom of God if you reject the unexpected king. See, that's what's crazy about Jesus. He's both the king and the herald of the kingdom. It's as if he will march from Galilee to the cross, winning battle after battle after battle after battle over all the other kingdoms until he makes the decisive blow, but that decisive blow won't be how you imagined it will be. It will be unexpected. It will be through his death and his resurrection. And all the time he's declaring this good news, this message of his kingdom, the kingdom of God. And once once he has struck that decisive blow, he hands off the duties to his followers. He says, the spirit that's been on me will come on you, and you will be the heralds now. You will take this message of the kingdom of God, and you will spread it from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Why? Because all authority now is mine, and I will be with you. We now are heralds of this good news of the kingdom. So we ought to know a little bit about this message. We'll pick up more as we go along in Luke, but I want to say a few things here about what this message is. First, it should not be overlooked that it is a message to be proclaimed. It is a message, first and foremost, to be proclaimed. Jesus' ministry is primarily a ministry of proclamation. And we'll see that really vividly next week when they want to keep Jesus in a place to continue to heal people, and he says, no, because this is not my purpose. My purpose, first and foremost, is to go and proclaim this good news to as many people as I can. He is proclaiming good news to the poor. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives and recovery of sight. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. It's news to be proclaimed, and it's still news to be proclaimed. We often think, oh, if I can give, some, if I can give an unbeliever the right facts, if maybe I can just do enough good things to kind of show Jesus, display Jesus to someone, then, then maybe, maybe they'll believe. And those things aren't necessarily bad, but what I want you to understand is those things are a product of our already faith. They're not prerequisites for someone else coming to faith. Showing the love of Christ is a product of what God has done in bringing us into his kingdom already. And we should do it. We should live that way. We should be a benefit to our community and to our family and to our neighborhoods. That's, that's, that's what Christ would have us to do. 
But that's not a prerequisite for someone else coming to faith. God's Word is clear. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. You can do good things in front of people all day and all night, and they'll probably just sit there and think, well, that, well Cody's just a really good person, isn't he? But I don't want people to have the good news of Cody's kingdom because that doesn't save anyone. That doesn't do anything for them. They need the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what they need. And the Spirit of God must do that work absolutely. But listen, the normative way that God has said that this will happen is by His Spirit's regenerating work coming alongside our faithful proclamation of the good news of the kingdom, proclaimed by God's church, His people. Those two things work together, and people are saved. God can do... I'm, God can do whatever He wants, and He sometimes does things in wild and fantastic ways, and praise God for that. But His Word says, listen, if a prophet comes and does a wonderful sign, what do you do? You go back and you check it by the Word. The Word says, this is how it happens. This is how it generally, normally, this is how I'm going to work. You proclaim the gospel, my spirit does its work, boom, that happens together. Practically speaking, if we want to see people brought into Jesus' kingdom, into the kingdom of God, then first we must be diligent in prayer because the spirit is necessary. You will not just convince someone, right? Pharaoh saw all of the signs, and he was unconvinced. So if Pharaoh saw all of that, I promise you, you are not going to do better than what Moses did, right? Not on your own. The Spirit of God must work. And so we must be diligent in prayer because the Spirit is necessary. And we must actually speak the good news to people. Why would we expect to sit in our bedroom and pray for someone to come to know Christ and for God to put that person in our life and expect God to do that without actually sharing the good news when that's how he said he'd do it? When that's the commission that he's actually given us? Why would we expect that? If we want to see a revival of God's kingdom in our community, we must pray, but we can't sit back praying and never boldly speak. We must proclaim, but we can't think that our gracious words will get it done on their own. And we must remember that sometimes even the people closest to us will reject us, just as they rejected Jesus. And that's not an indictment on God's kingdom. That's an indictment on them. Second, it's a message about God's salvation. See, the Israelites had this particular thought about what it might look like. Yeah, we're oppressed and we're held captive and, and poor, and this salvation is, 
they thought of it as mostly about earthly circumstances, or at least that's where it's going to start. It's sort of an outside-in kind of salvation. And some in more recent times and in our own day and age have taken Jesus' words to mean that, that salvation is based in or, or must include the liberation of those who, who they see as oppressed in social or political or economic ways. And we should and so they would argue that we should primarily look to change those conditions, those external conditions for people. That's what God would want us to do. And, and listen, God wants us to love people, and He wants His justice to reign in the world. Yes, absolutely, but again, that is a result of God's kingdom coming into us, right, of changing us. That is not what's going to affect or bring about God's kingdom from the outside in. Listen to, I think a lot of this revolves around a misunderstanding of the images and word pictures of Isaiah that Isaiah is using and, and how he meant them. I'll, I'll give you an example. In Isaiah chapter 55, 6 and 7, I could grab a number of texts, but we don't have all day. So here's what it says. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is a description of this age that Jesus says, it's now, right now. That if you would turn and seek the Lord, he will be found. That if you would call upon him, he is actually very near to you. That his compassion is abundant. If you would just forsake your way and turn to him instead, he would abundantly pardon. You see, this age is an age of repentance and forgiveness from God, first and foremost. They were thinking that the Messiah would turn their external circumstances and maybe They were thinking it would turn their external circumstances, but he, Jesus, came to do something much greater. He came to turn their hearts. He came to turn hearts back to the eternal, sovereign creator of the universe. He didn't come primarily to change some situation right now today here on earth. He came to change eternal circumstances. I think it's best to think of these images first in terms of spiritual realities. The poor is often a generalization of those who have most often responded to the gospel. For, for His glory, we can see in Scripture, is often, is often shown best in how He brings up the low and despised of the world, right? And the release of captives makes us think, like I said, of Israel being freed of, of, from, from Egypt or uh, enabled to return from exile. And so these people, they're being... Re- they're being freed from sin and they're returning from their exile away from God. And the image of release from sin and spiritual captivity is one that is repeated throughout the book of Luke and Acts. We can see that in Luke 177, 747, 2447, Acts 238, Acts 531, 1043, 1338, 2618. It happens over and over and over again. That being said, I think that understanding the effects of this salvation in purely spiritual terms also seems to be a mistake. God intends for you to be transformed 
from the inside out, and that to actually manifest itself in your everyday life, in your family, in your workplace, and in your community. When God does a work of His kingdom in a place, that place is actually changed, right? And we'll see over the coming chapters that wherever Jesus goes, Wherever he goes, and, and, and the kingdom at this point in Jesus' ministry is basically wherever he goes. He is like the kingdom and the king, and he's, he's, he's just doing boom, boom, kingdom, 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 kingdom. And wherever he goes, it actually changes things on the outside as well. People are really healed. Demons are really cast out. The good news of the kingdom is an inside-out salvation. We'll see, though, next week, we'll see an example of those who who are only looking for the outside effects of the kingdom. And I'll just uh, teaser, it's it's not great. It's not great for them. So third, it's a message to all nations. It's a message of salvation, but it's a message to all Nations, this is a big theme in the book of Luke. The Jews of Jesus' day largely made the assumption that this message is for them. It's about their salvation. It's about they are the people of God, but they misunderstood God's plan. Isaiah 65 has some great examples of this. In verse 1 and 2, it says this, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. What is Isaiah saying, well, Paul quotes this in Romans 10, 20 as referring to the Gentiles coming to Christ. The Gentiles were not called by his name, and yet now, because of this age, because of what Christ has brought to fruition, they are received into this kingdom. And they who were not called by his name, they, they who were called his enemies, right? The Syrians, let's say, they were the enemies of Israel. And God's people. And now they are God's people. There's a reversal of fortune wherein those who had been God's people, Israel, but had rejected God, are expelled. And God raises up a new people from all nations, Israel and all the rest, who who are actually turning to Him and will and will be called by his name. And so in Isaiah 65, 13 and 16, we see this. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry, you who rejected me. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to be chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. In a few weeks in Luke 60, 20 and 26, Jesus leverages this passage again. He, he quotes it and kind of alludes to it in, in a sermon that he gives to his disciples, and he connects these things to the rejection of the Old Testament prophets, just as he connects Elijah and Elisha to the rejection of him in this day, in Nazareth. And so it's a message of salvation, yes, but it's not merely for Israelites because they're ethnic Israelites. God will make his servants into a new name. He will make those who will receive him into a new name. 
a new people. And they'll be from all nations and all peoples. And God showed that that was always his plan when he sent Elijah and Elisha outside of Israel to do those miracles. But for those who would rather listen to false prophets and whose itching ears would rather listen to false gospels, the Lord will put them to death. That's what the text says. And so we may at times need to rearrange our expectations for who God is bringing into his kingdom. We may need to adjust our thinking even about how we have responded to his word. Listen, if you're here today and you think because you are who you are in an earthly sense because you grew up in the family you grew up in or because you've done these things and they're not as bad as the things that those people have done and you think that just based on that, that you get in. I don't want you to be surprised on that day. It's only based on faith in Christ. Turn. Turn to him. See that he will not abundantly pardon you. See that his compassion is not more than you could ever imagine. But if you think that you will make your way into that kingdom on your own accord, friends, it will not go well for you. And finally, I want you to see that this is a message for now. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus sat down and he said to everyone there, today, this is fulfilled. Today, this is happening. This fantastic time where fortunes uh, are reversed and many will be changed and people's hearts will turn away from their sin and turn to God and God's compassion will, will overflow and will rest on, him and, on them and their steadfast love will be evident and people will, will never be the same once they hear it and once they believe it and where the Spirit of God that's come upon Christ will be poured out on men and women. That time is now. Yes. It's today. Yes. God's doing that right now. We are not losing. We are winning. We have won. And that doesn't mean that everything is going to go perfect. It doesn't mean that sometimes people won't reject us and want to throw us off a cliff. Sure, that may still happen, but that doesn't change the fact that Christ has won and we are winning. Jesus said it 2,000 years ago, and we did not revert backwards somehow. He didn't, you know, make that happen and then put a pause on it temporarily. No one has killed, no one's killed it or stopped it. You want to know how I know? Because Jesus walked right through their midst. He dies when he says he dies. And not a moment sooner. Because he is king. His word wins when, when and where he wants it to win. No one can stop it. Friends, that is the kingdom that we are in, and that is our king. He has struck the de decisive blow. Yes. He has all authority, and he's commissioned us to spread that good news that people who were lost can be found, people who were dead can be made alive. Yes. 
And lo and behold, 2,000 years later, that message has spread over much of the world. And people for centuries have been transformed by the truth of that good news. And friends, I'm one of them. Maybe you are too. It's not always happened how I've expected it to happen all the time. But it has always turned out better in the end. So listen, if you aren't yet a believer, this is the question. It really comes down to this. Who do you believe Jesus is? Is he the son of Joseph or is he the son of God? That's really what it comes down to. Are you captive and oppressed by sin? He can free you. Are you blind and don't know the way? He can give sight. Are you poor and hungry and thirsty? He cares for you. He will care for you. Seek the Lord when he will be found. Call upon his name. Listen, he is near. You may think he's far away, but he is at hand if you would just turn to him. Christian, I wonder if you've become a little bit like the hometown crowd. We can become so familiar with Jesus that that you can't even believe that he really has brought this new salvific age, this, this time, this kingdom is now. Perhaps you're so familiar with Jesus uh, that you just, it's hard. This message sounds good and you marvel at the words of it. But when he says he's actually done it, do you believe it? Or do you reject it? Do you live like Christians are underdogs? Do you live with the assumption that your neighbor or your brother or your friend will likely never come to know God? Do you live like Satan is in charge and we're just trying to kind of hunker down and wait until Jesus can come and kind of get us out of here? Or are you living like the definitive work has already been accomplished by Christ? And yeah, today, some things may be hard. And not every fight goes the way you want. And sometimes we take hits. Sometimes we get bumps and bruises. But the victory is Christ. And so will we say to Jesus, you said it, now just show it to me, Jesus, and then I'll believe it. Or, or will we say, Jesus, you promised it. I'm going to trust in you, and I'm going to live by it, knowing that in your time and in your way that you know is best, you will act. Which one will it be? Let's pray. Lord,